0: Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History, and this is episode five, entitled Palermo, Naval of the World. In earlier episodes, we have looked at the development, from Charlemagne onwards, of what the historian Stephen Runciman called the grandest conception of the Middle Ages, the universal papal monarchy, the notion that Pope and Holy Roman Emperor should provide the joint leadership of Western Christendom. Alas, this relationship was in practice more often one of conflict than of partnership, and the 13th century was to prove no different with the Norman Kingdom of Sicily, the key piece on the geopolitical board. A brief bit of backfilling is necessary here. You may recall that the Saxon Ottonian dynasty was replaced on the imperial throne by the Rhinelander Salians. After their direct line died out, they were replaced by the Staufers of Swabia, that's southwest Bavaria, with Frederick I Barbarossa, or Redbeard, taking the imperial title in 1152. Frederick ruled until 1190, when he met his death with that ill-advised swim on the Third Crusade, and as a tough swashbuckling military leader went down in German folklore as the king under the mountain, not dead so much as sleeping, and poised to return to rescue the nation in its hour of peril. Less has been heard of that tale since Hitler, mindful of Frederick's successful campaigns against the Slavs beyond the Elbe, codenamed his 1940 invasion of Russia Barbarossa. Mainly, though, Barbarossa's preoccupation was to restore the emperor's power in northern Italy, where, since the investiture conflict, the empire had lost ground to the papacy. Decades of warfare ebbed and flowed, and though Frederick managed to secure his imperial coronation by the pope in Venice, the price was formal submission, kneeling before the pope on the threshold of St. Mark's in 1177 one hundred years on from Canossa. Hostilities inevitably resumed, with the Italian city-states discovering, uh, like youth in gang-plagued inner cities today, uh, that it was safer to declare for one side or the other. Neutrals just got attacked by both. The Pope's party was styled Guelphs, the Emperor's Ghibellines, corruptions of the names of two rival dynastic factions in Germany. And, indeed, uh, there was plenty of scope for convoluted alliance forming across the Alps, with those losing out in either Italy or Germany, seeking to make trouble for their enemies elsewhere. Declaration for either Guelph or Ghibelline could also be a handy way of securing external support for coup or revolution or other form of regime change within a city-state. So Barbarossa had his hands more than full in Italy, and kept a lid on affairs back home by using Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony, and descendant of the old Ottonian imperial line, as in effect his regent in Germany. Fine, until in quick succession Barbarossa died, followed by the Lion, followed by Barbarossa's son and successor, Henry VI. Henry's son named Frederick after his grandfather, was only two. A situation altogether too tempting for the lion's own son, Otto, who, after various manoeuvrings, secured the throne for himself and led the imperial forces against the French at Bouvines. If the French victory at Bouvines had been a body-blow to their Plantagenet rivals, it also had a profound impact on the Holy Roman Empire the humiliated Emperor Otto was deposed and replaced by Barbarossa's now eighteen-year-old grandson as Frederick II, arguably the most powerful and certainly the most colourful of the pre habsburg emperors. He acquired the nickname Stupor Mundi, uh, the wonder of the world, or, or perhaps less formally, the gobsmacker. The thing about Frederick II was that he was as much a Norman Sicilian as a German Stauffer. His mother was Constance, daughter of Roger II of Sicily, and thus grandniece of the Weasel. A tough Norman lady, the previously childless Constance had scotched rumours about the authenticity of her pregnancy by inviting nineteen cardinals and bishops to witness the birth. In a tent, in a town square. Barbarossa had married his son Henry to her as a play to detach Sicily from the papacy, a play jeopardised by Henry's early death in Palermo in 1197. Well aware of the difficulties their infant son Frederick would face in securing his German inheritance, Constance had him quickly crowned King of Sicily, with herself as regent only herself to expire prematurely, leaving the infant Frederick to be brought up in the court at Palermo. Palermo, crossroads of the Mediterranean and capital of what was known simply as the Regno, or Kingdom, eclipsed all contemporary European cities for wealth and culture and sheer exoticism. Frederick was its product. Speaker of six languages, proud possessor of a famous menagerie and an equally famous harem, patron of artists and scholars. Frederick ruled from Palermo and is buried there. As Barbarossa's grandson, he was never going to ignore his imperial destiny. His life was a long campaign to enforce his imperial authority, and under him the empire reached its greatest geographical extent. But he showed little interest in Germany, controlling it through sons and generous concessions to the German nobles, his main aim was to extend Sicilian power throughout Italy. Naturally, this meant decades of running feud and conflict with a succession of popes. Frederick was excommunicated four times. A particular bone of contention was Frederick's reluctance to support the Fifth Crusade against Egypt, Eventually he led an expedition to the Holy Land, the Sixth Crusade, and recovered Jerusalem for a ten-year period, but by negotiation. Most of Frederick's campaigns in Lombardy were successful, but in 1248 he suffered a decisive defeat at Parma and lost his harem. How does one do that? Two years later he was dead. Two sons and a grandson tried to claim succession, but all failed and control of the empire was so variously disputed that no pope felt obliged to crown a new emperor for another sixty years. On the face of it, the century-long trial of strength between the Stauffer emperors and the papacy ended with victory for the Church. The pope ungenerously celebrated Frederick's demise as the death of the Antichrist. The Stauffer dynasty came to an end, and with their geographical ambitions unrealized. Frederick Barbarossa had aimed to assert imperial control in northern Italy, only to be mired in unending Guelph Ghibelline conflict. His grandson and namesake had aimed to subject Italy to his Sicilian power base, and could not make that stick either. On the latter's death, the papacy hastened to reassert its overlordship of the Regno, hawking the Sicilian crown round various European princes including Edmund of England, before finally settling it on a brother of the French king, a man, as it turned out, with the vaulting ambitions of his own. But the papacy itself was scarcely undamaged. Already in the 11th century, clamour for church reform was growing. See Gregory the Seventh's attempt to stamp out simony, and with the ever-increasing power and wealth of prince-bishops and monasteries, came a spreading perception that the church had succumbed to corruption and lost its way. This longing for spiritual renewal manifested itself in the early 13th century in heretical movements. The Cathars urged purity and simplicity, alongside some weird theology, and in the appearance of new orders of mendicant friars, notably the Dominicans and Franciscans. Naturally, The Church responded to these challenges with holy war for the heretics and co-optation for the overzealous friars. St Francis preached absolute poverty, calling on his followers to live and preach without roof over their heads, yet within two years of his death work had begun on the vast white bulk of his Basilica of Assisi. None of this helped the Church's moral authority, The decay of the original crusading dream of recovering the Holy Land, and the increasing abuse of ecclesiastical sanctions such as excommunication for overtly political purposes, contributed to a level of disenchantment that left the church a progressively weakened institution. Its stock price fell so far that it was ripe for takeover, which is effectively what would happen. All this may sound a bit dismal, uh, but it really could have been worse, and in the coming decades would be. There might be too many armies on the march, besieging too many cities, especially if you lived in Lombardy, Uh, but in 1241 Christendom was treated to a chill reminder of what real devastation could amount to, when the Mongols swept into Poland and Hungary, obliterating whatever and whoever stood in their path. Legend has it that the famous interrupted trumpet call sounded daily from St Mary's Church Tower in Krakow marks the moment when the century, attempting to raise the alarm, took a Mongol arrow in the throat. The Polish army was smashed at the Battle of Nykneka. Half the population of Hungary was killed. The eastern marches of the empire trembled and undertook a crash programme of fortification, whilst the invaders turned their attention to the Balkans. Then, the following year, the Mongols withdrew, as rapidly as they had arrived. The great Khan had died, and the Mongol chiefs were needed back in Karakorum to elect his successor. So that was a lucky escape, except obviously for the Poles and Hungarians, and Kiev and Moscow before them. And in Charlemagne's old domains of Central and Western Europe most of life just went on, whatever popes and emperors got up to. Indeed, at most levels it improved, with prosperity and the development of a more civilised society advancing hand in hand. The sack of Constantinople in 1204 may have been a great betrayal, but it did wonders for the Italian Maritime Republics and the European economies with which they traded. The spread of the monastic orders helped diffusion of scholarship and technology both industrial and agricultural. Constant sectarian conflict may have meant that the Florentine Dante died in exile in Ravenna, but not before he, along with others such as Boccaccio, had fathered Italian literature, at much the same time as Giotto was prefiguring the Renaissance by introducing bulk and realism into painting. Meanwhile, France went from strength to strength, enjoying a period of further consolidation under Louis IX, grandson of Philip II, who ruled from 1226 to 1270. Notably devout and an enthusiast for the inquisition and the hair-shirt, he participated in both the Seventh and Eighth Crusades, dying of dysentery on the latter, and subsequently being canonised as St. Louis. He built the Saint-Chapelle for his palace on the Ile de la Cite in Paris to house his collection of relics of Christ, the star exhibit was the Crown of Thorns, and in so doing left us the supreme surviving achievement of medieval stained glass. With a devout and increasingly powerful king, France's influence over the papacy was set to grow, with consequences which we shall come to in the next episode. Meanwhile, however, I would like to follow up the thought that, though popes and monarchs may have particular profile, their importance in the unfolding of our European story was often eclipsed by what we might today call non-state actors. We hear a lot about them these days, whether with reference to the new tech behemoths such as Apple and Meta, or terrorist franchises like Al-Qaeda there is nothing new about organisations with the power and or wealth to elude or transcend the control of territorial authorities in the high middle ages these were primarily the military orders such as the knights of st john the great religious orders all those monks and friars and commercial associations such as the hanseatic league let us take a quick look at each of these in turn The Knights of St. John, or Knights Hospitaller, and the Knights Templar, set up in Jerusalem around the time of the First Crusade. Their mission was the welfare and protection of pilgrims. They enjoyed papal backing, and proved attractive to idealistic and footloose young noblemen from across Europe. As crusading forces came and went, they became the nearest thing the Kingdom of Jerusalem had to a standing army and their growing importance and prestige attracted rich donations and more recruits. Soon they were garrisoning new castles across the Holy Land, such as Krak des Chevaliers, the Hospitaller's magnificent fortress in southern Syria. Back in Europe, the lands and revenues with which the orders were increasingly endowed were organised into transnational networks of hundreds of houses, a sort of military equivalent of the monasteries. After the fall of Acre in 1291, the hospitalers relocated briefly to Cyprus before seizing Rhodes from the Byzantines in 1310 and holding it until expelled by the Ottoman Turks two centuries later. Malta then became their new headquarters, where they heroically survived a famous Ottoman siege in 1265 and remained an independent entity until Napoleon arrived in seventeen ninety eight things went less well for the Templars. Uh, they became early financial experts, managing the investments with which the pious endowed them, and providing a banking service first for pilgrims and then for those with international business more generally and They lent to kings, Philip the Fourth of France in particular, who massively in their debt was no doubt well placed to detect the pervasive corruption and heresy with which he decided to charge the order. With papal connivance, he burned the Grand Master and his chief lieutenants at the stake in 1314. Legend has it that the Grand Master's dying curse was responsible for the death of both King and Pope within the year. To the extent that Templar assets were not promptly nationalised across Europe, they were folded into the Hospitaller Order, The third major military order was the Teutonic Knights, whose origins were a little later but similar. After the Holy Land, they found a new lease of life pursuing the Baltic Crusades, at the behest of the papacy and of Frederick II as Holy Roman Emperor. When their drive into Russia was checked by Alexander Nevsky at the Battle of the Ice in 1242, they consolidated on Marienburg, which they founded in twelve seventy four as a vast fortress city, at the bottom right hand corner of the Baltic Sea. The town's name recalls the Order's patrons and Mary, and the bizarre legend the knights fostered, that Jesus's mother hailed from that part of the world. From here, aided and abetted by the Catholic Poles, they delivered Christianity at sword point to the pagan Balts, though not to the Lithuanians, who finally converted only in 1384, when their Grand Duke married the 11-year-old Queen of Poland. The Teutonic Knights held the lands they conquered directly from the Pope. As the Polish-Lithuanian alliance prospered, over the next couple of centuries it would develop into an empire stretching across Europe, from the Baltic to the Black Sea, so they determined to bring the Knights to heel an aim duly achieved at the Battle of Grunwald in 1410. In 1525, the Grand Master converted to Lutheranism and became, as Duke of Prussia, a vassal of the Polish king. So Prussia, a name we associate today with Germany's 19th century Second Empire and Kaiser Bill, originated in the far corner of the Baltic Sea, centred on today's Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. Even more significant as non-state actors were the religious orders. The Benedictines were the first. St. Benedict lived in central Italy around the year 500, a good time for the God-fearing to retreat from the world. His foundations included the monastery at Monte Cassino. His rule prescribed a regime of poverty, obedience, work and prayer. The model went viral— with hundreds of Benedictine monasteries founded across Western Europe through the Dark Ages, including the monastery at Canterbury, which St Augustine made his base in 597 for evangelising the English. The Benedictines had, indeed have, no command structure, not so cluny. In 1025 the Pope decreed that the great mother-house in Burgundy, should have absolute authority over all its daughter-houses, some fifteen hundred at the order's zenith, with the habit of Cluny answerable only to the Pope. Cluny adapted St Benedict's rule to put more emphasis on prayer. The Cistercians, by contrast, aimed more to change the world around them, whether by developing technology, metallurgy, water-wheels, or influencing the temporal powers. Their founder, St Bernard, was the most charismatic churchman of the day, disputing with Abelard, and with the Cluniacs, and preaching the Second Crusade. The new orders represented an impulse for reform, but not enough to salvage the wider reputation of the church. Around 1200, the disenchantment of the devout erupted in heretical movements, notably the Cathars and the Pyrenees, and in the appearance of mendicant friars. Rejecting the seclusion of monks, the followers of Spanish priests and Dominic, black friars, and St. Francis, grey friars, saw their job as taking God's word to the poor and oppressed in their own communities. Like all revolutionary movements, they would become institutionalised over time, with papal rules and friaries from which to operate commercial associations were also developing as powerful non-state forces, none more so than the Hanseatic League. As cities acquired their own political and commercial privileges, often extracted from emperor or king at time of crisis, so they discovered the benefits of coordination at the regional level over such issues as users tariffs and tolls and standards Followers of the Brexit saga will readily understand the impact these technical matters have on prosperity. Such leagues, or circles, became an enduring feature of the Holy Roman Empire, eventually reflected in the overall political structure. But the Hanseatic League was, well, in a league of its own. In 1159, Henry the Lion founded Lübeck on the Baltic Sea. The port city rapidly became a Baltic power, and in 1241 allied itself to Hamburg, with comparable trading and fishing interests on the North Sea. In following decades, ports and cities across northwestern Europe joined the association, including the towns of the newly colonized eastern shores of the Baltic, shipping and trading furs, timber and grain from as far east as Novgorod, as well as wool from England and cloth and manufactures from the Low Countries. The League invested in lighthouses and the provision of pilots. It used its economic clout to establish freeport trading posts in Bergen and London, the famous steelyard, and warehouses in many other locations. Bruges and Antwerp were regularly visited by merchant convoys from the Mediterranean, becoming pivotal points of exchange between the north and south of Europe. The League developed its own legal system, and armed forces for mutual aid. Like today's multinationals, it played off monarchs and state authorities against each other to secure the best commercial terms and diplomatic privileges. But by the 15th century, rising state powers, from Russia and Poland in the east to the Scandinavian monarchies, the Holy Roman Empire and Holland, became more protective of their own commercial interests, and developed the military means to assert them. The Hansa monopoly was progressively broken, and by the late 16th century the League had largely disintegrated. But we must now return to the main political story, which we left with the Emperor Frederick II's death in 1250. The price of Stupor Mundi's efforts to dominate the Italian peninsula was that he had cut the German princes north of the Alps a lot of slack, so when he died in 1250, neither his eldest legitimate son, Conrad, nor anyone else could make his claim to the imperial throne stick. More than twenty years of interregnum ensued, with rival factions electing rival kings of the Romans, as an emperor-designate was styled. This was the papacy's chance to achieve a decisive shift in the balance of power of the empire, to confirm its leadership of Western Christendom, temporal as well as spiritual, and the key, as seen from Rome, was to re-establish the principle and practice that the king of Sicily was the Pope's vassal. From the politico-military melee that followed the Emperor Frederick's death, it was one of his many bastard sons, Manfred, who initially emerged strongest, securing control of the Regno. From this southern power base, he could aspire to follow his father onto the imperial throne. But the papacy was not going to have this, and Urban IV set about hawking the crown of Sicily around the courts of Europe. He found a taker in Charles, Count of Anjou, and brother of King Saint Louis. Charles had spent the previous decade subduing Provence, which he had acquired by marriage to Beatrice, one of Count Raymond Berenguer's four famously gorgeous daughters. The other three were already queens, married variously to King Louis, to Henry III of England, and to Henry's brother Richard of Cornwall, who, bizarrely, was one of those rival kings of the Romans. Beatrice saw no reason why not to make that four queens out of four sisters as wife of the king of the Regno. Not that Charles needed an ambitious wife to spur him on. He looked east across the Mediterranean and saw a world of opportunity. True, the Mamluks and Cairo were a formidable power, putting ever greater pressure on the Crusader Kingdom in the Holy Land, but between southern Italy and the Levant lay an enticing power vacuum, created by the Fourth Crusade's outrageous sacking of Constantinople. The Latin Empire, established there, had never flourished, the Byzantine emperors, retreating to Nicaea in Asia Minor, had rebuilt their strength, and in 1261 the Eastern Emperor Michael Palaeologos had succeeded in retaking his capital city. But the restored Byzantium was a puny entity, and Manfred, the king of Sicily whom Charles now intended to depose, had demonstrated the possibilities by helping himself to bits of modern-day Albania and Greece. So Charles had only to establish himself in the Regno and embrace the cause of the ousted Latin emperor as pretext for a new assault on Constantinople, and the whole of the northeastern Mediterranean could be his. His aim was nothing less than the restoration of the later Roman Empire to go down in history as the new Justinian. And how did that work out? Please join me for the next episode to find out.